This podcast is brought to you by the Creation Academy Honors Program, an apologetics learning experience designed to teach, train, and inspire others to become strong defenders of the Christian faith and biblical creation. Launching early 2019, the program offers video and audio training with downloadable course workbooks, expert interviews, and exclusive Q&A sessions with leading creation scientists and apologists, quarterly ebooks covering a wide variety of subject matter, and even a private Facebook community where you'll fellowship and interact with a like-minded community of believers. If you want to be notified when the program goes live and even help us design the experience from the ground up, head on over to www.jointca.co today and sign up for the waitlist. You'll get early access to the private Facebook group for free as a thank you for joining. You're listening to The Creation Academy, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Schramm, and uh, this week we have an exciting interview for you. Uh, Oh man, it it was uh, absolutely a great time in discussion with a man named Dr. Edgar Andrews. And uh, when I introduce him, I will, of course, uh, be telling you all about him. And uh, notably, which I did not know until after our interview was finished up, uh, he had debated Richard Dawkins back in 1986. And so certainly this is a man who uh, has the ability to speak intelligently from a scientific perspective. Um, He has a platform and is well known for his uh, creationist viewpoints over there in the UK. And uh, I think you're going to find today's discussion with him to be incredibly helpful and encouraging. So uh, without further ado, here's our conversation with Dr. Edgar Andrews. Dr. Edgar Andrews is um, Emeritus Professor of Material Science uh, at the University of London, England, with PhD and higher doctorate degrees in physics and over 100 scientific research papers under his belt. Uh, Having retired uh, from the scientific enterprise, he now co-pastors the campus church in Welwyn Garden. Hope I'm saying that right. Uh, Wellwyn Garden City in the UK, uh, and writes helpful books and commentaries, um, one of which I, I currently have the pleasure of reading. Uh, Dr. Andrews, thank you so much for joining us today on, on the Creation Academy. We're, uh, we're honored to have you with us. Um, we're discussing today the historicity of Adam and Eve and your new book, What is Man, Adam, Alien, or Ape? Thank you. Yes, it's a pleasure to be with you. Absolutely. So uh, one question I have for you, uh, and this might be a little bit uh, uh, unrelated, but I can't help just asking. Uh, tell us more about your background. Your, you know, what, what is your expertise on this subject? What is it like, uh, or what was it like being in academia uh, as a Bible believer? Uh, it's kind of like a, a three-horned uh, unicorn or something like that uh, in these days, it seems like, or at least that's what everybody wants you to think. Uh, so what was that like, and what, what was your experience like? It wasn't a problem for me in any way. I think that uh, I 
conducted myself in such a way that uh, people respected my views, even though they didn't agree with them. Mm. And uh, so I never had any opposition uh, in the way that many academics receive opposition today if they embrace a creationist position. So perhaps I was fortunate, perhaps I, I was working in a different era <clears throat> because it's now um, some considerable time since I uh, retired, nearly 20 years, uh, and uh, uh, maybe I, I was living in a more tolerant age. <laughs> yeah, I, I certainly can understand that. But I think, uh, you know, what you said first is really where it's at, you know, conducting yourself in, in a manner that uh, is respectable. And, and I appreciate that. You know, let's just be honest. There are those who who do take a creationist position who uh, maybe they wouldn't be the victim if they didn't make themselves the victim. <laughs> uh, you can do good science, as you've demonstrated. You can, you can do good science. You can um, make predictions uh, about trends and things that you see based on data that you have. You can be respectable. You can freely admit when you might be wrong, um, and you can stand uh, against the uh, uh, the majority when you think the majority is wrong and having good reasons to do so. But if you do that, conducting yourself with, with, with grace and with a Christian attitude that uh, warrants that respect, then I imagine... Oh, well, that's that's yeah. right. Um, <clears throat> I, I was also, for over 30 years an international consultant for the Dow Chemical Company. Wow. And uh, so I was very frequently in the USA, and I always visited their research headquarters in Midland, Michigan. Uh, and I became very close friends with the director of research for the Dow Company, um, who was not a Christian. But after one particular lecture I gave, which obviously impressed him considerably. Uh, he, and he was taking me to lunch in the car. Uh, he said, quite out of the blue, I think your faith illuminates your science. Huh. In other words, because I believed in a God of order, God of, of creation, uh, it it made my science more significant and more effective. Uh, that was his uh, uh, opinion, and um, it, it was unsolicited completely, and quite a surprise to hear him say it. Yeah, wow, that's a that's a almost a, just a one eighty. I mean, that is a completely different attitude than uh, than most would say today. Uh, and I don't, you know, frankly. Uh, it's even being a Christian, uh, it's even the attitude among many Christians uh, that if you take the standard, uh, you know, kind of creationist position, and, you know, we that's kind of widely defined, but basically a position other than than a theistic evolution kind of position, uh, it's kind of like you, you, it's kind of like you don't even know how to do science. It's like, um, 
you know, it's like science is, uh, you're doing pseudoscience or it's anti-science. And as a matter of fact, it wasn't but a couple days ago from the time we were recording this that uh, that I had to deal with somebody making that very same uh, accusation. And so to hear that somebody um, who was not a Christian and obviously very scientifically minded, for them to say something like that, that must have been quite an honor uh, and unexpected. <laughs> So that's a, that's a blessing. Uh, well, let's uh, let's go ahead and start to dive into it. Thank you for that, by the way. That 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 bit of background, um, y- you know, this issue of the historical nature of Adam and Eve uh, has really, really kind of been inflamed. Uh, I think in these past few years, um, you know, I'm not much for calling names, but uh, certainly the work of influential. Uh, guys like uh, like John Walton, for example, writing some of the books that they have, even if they, in their writing, don't want to say that they personally affirm theistic evolution, uh, they have also affirmed that their works certainly open up the door for that. And we're not necessarily here uh, today to, to bash theistic evolution, uh, but we do think, uh, Dr. Andrews and I are both very mutually agreed that no matter where you put them in history, whatever whatever the case, um, there is a necessity to understand that Adam and Eve were historical figures um, made in the image of God, and uh, that we are not uh, related to animals. We are, uh, and that's a very simplistic way of putting it. Uh, b- but that we are, we are something separate. We are something different. We are a unique creation of God. That might be a way to put it. And um, so we want to spend a little bit of time today going through some of those some of those claims. Uh, what about then, uh, Doctor Andrews? On the first of it, um, in your book, you mentioned things. Uh, about the genetic diversity of of man, and there's there's this idea from the theistic evolutionist you know perspective, uh, or from just the general evolutionist perspective that uh, we could not see uh, the biodiversity, especially uh, especially among amongst humans today, without starting with around a population of of pre-human apes. Um, what do you have to say about that in your book from that perspective? Well, can I first of all put the thing in context within the book? Because uh, the book is not just about Adam and Eve, um, but it is very much about the historicity of the biblical account of creation and about a biblical worldview. And in fact, the first two thirds of the book are devoted to the secular viewpoints that are so popular today, an examination and critique of those viewpoints. So first of all, we actually ask the question, where is man? Uh, Because where is man is uh, a precursor to the question, what is man? The point being that if we live in uh, an accidental universe, that uh, was never created, then we ourselves are accidents. Uh, uh, Everything is accidental, and there is no ultimate meaning uh, in any of our science or religion or anything. Um, Well, then we uh, move on, having examined and found wanting 
the secular viewpoint, which uh, basically says, are we are we aliens? Are we simply uh, accidents that have occurred uh, of the creation of life and intelligent life at that throughout the universe? Um, moving on from that, we look at the second part of the book, which is uh, man's uniqueness in the world of biology. First of all, his uniqueness in the cosmos. Secondly, his uniqueness in the biosphere, as uh, we call it, the world of living things. Sure. Mm -hmm. And once again, you see, uh, examining the popular viewpoints and the arguments in favor, uh, I decide uh, and hopefully prove uh, to a fair-minded person that the secular arguments do not provide the answer to what is man. Yeah, can I can I can I interrupt you really quick, Doctor Andrews? Yeah, because yes. something you said really, uh, I want you to get right back to where you were. But something you said intrigued me. You know, we're talking about purpose. Uh, where is man? Are, you know, is this is this a purposefully designed universe, or is the whole thing? Is the whole thing just an accident? And there's been this trend to come back and say, well, purpose is what you make of it. It, it You create your own uh, purpose. Now, I, I don't know if you address that in the book, but surely you have some thoughts about that. Does that, does that work? Uh, can one create their own uh, purpose and have just as much purpose as if we understand that we're created by God? Well, uh, it's a good question, and we do indeed deal with it in the book. Uh, in order to create your own purpose, you have to create your own reality. Hmm. And that is really where I, I pitch in very strongly. Uh, what is reality? And the issue that has to be decided is whether there is a real reality out there, uh, whether there is an absolute reality quite independent of the uh, viewpoint and uh, thoughts and ideas of mankind, uh, which of course is a theistic position. It is the the position of the Bible. Sure. Uh, that the ultimate reality is God, and uh, he is an unchanging reality. Uh, and therefore, we can find in him truth, of all kinds. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, and if we believe that, then all kinds of reality, including purpose, uh, can very simply be traced back to the purpose of an almighty creator, uh, God, who is revealed in the Bible and in Christ, particularly. Yeah, that's... That, now, uh, that's if, if you don't have that absolute reality, then whatever you decide, whatever purpose you generate for your own personal life, uh, is really play-acting. It, hmm. it's, it's imaginary. It's like a child <laughs> uh, playing a game, pretending to be a, a doctor or a nurse or a superman or superwoman, uh, it, it doesn't, it cannot have any ultimate meaning and it is a kind of self-deception. Wow, that's strong. 
Yeah, that that's really strong because you know, I mean, if you're, I mean, if you're denying, uh, denying reality, I mean, that's kind of like, you know, uh, I hate to use such a, a you know, a, a, an example, which could be so emotionally driven, but you know, I mean, if you go to the doctor and this might be simplistic, but I mean, if you go to the doctor, um, you're going to want to deal with reality there. If, if the doctor thinks that you have cancer, it, it does no good for the doctor to tell you that you don't have cancer because that makes you feel, um, something different about reality, uh, it, it wouldn't be reality. It, it would, in fact, be self-deception. And so, I mean, what you're talking about is kind of the same thing there, isn't it? That's right. Hmm. That's right. Yeah, that's that's something. So so we know, and, and for the sake of this discussion, let's just assume that you've made the point then in the book that um, that we live in a universe that has been uh, designed. And as a matter of fact, uh, you know, many of the greatest scholars today who aren't Christian uh, actually want to freely admit that it uh, that our universe, that our world, that uh, especially as we dial down into biology, that we we're starting to deal with something that looks designed, um, but it's you know that that evolution then is what is playing the game. Uh, in in a sense, evolution has deceived us into thinking that there is real purpose and that uh, that there is design in the universe, and so uh, we need to uh, somehow, I guess, uh, you know, fight against our intuitions there and say, look, even though it looks designed, uh, it isn't. And I imagine that you spend some time in the book, uh, using that similar analogies about, uh, design and the way that design in nature looks. Is that kind of the gist of when we start talking about what is man? Well, in actual fact, I cover that ground more fully in my 2009 book, uh, which is entitled, who made God. Okay. Uh, and so I, I do mention it in the new book, but I, I also refer people to the early, earlier book. But uh, your comments bring us back to the, the subject that we really want to concentrate on tonight. Um, uh, is man evolved uh, from animal stock by natural processes, like the neo-Darwinian uh, process of um, macro-evolution or common descent, or is man a special creation uh, different from the animals? Now, this point that you mentioned a, a, a while ago, the current idea that the genetic diversity of the human race today is so great that uh, humanity could not have derived from a single pair, single couple, uh, that it was necessary to, in order to generate the kind of diversity we see uh, in the genetics of the human race today, necessary for there to be perhaps as many as 10,000 uh, Adams, if you like, uh, a population of pre-human animals of about 10,000 strong, or at least 10,000 strong. And this has been strongly urged by theistic uh, evolutionists, and they argue from the science, and it's it's, it's a complicated argument, a technical argument. I do deal with it 
in a layperson-friendly way in the book, but I don't think we've got time this evening to get into the genetics. But ultimately, it's a very simple point. <clears throat> now, each one of us human beings has something like 20 to 25,000 genes. Yeah, these are parts of the DNA that um, code for proteins, which allow proteins to be manufactured, different proteins, of course. Now, although we have 25,000 genes, <clears throat> uh, we only have two copies of any particular gene. Mm -hmm. One we got from mum, and the other we got from dad. In other words, we get one copy of a particular gene from our, uh, our father, one from our mother. So we have just two copies. Now, those copies might be identical, but they might not be, because genes come in different flavors, if you like. Uh, to give an illustration, um, suppose you and a friend go out, each of you intending to buy a Ford Mustang sports car. And uh, you go to different dealers, and so when you come back and compare your purchases, you've both got red cars, red Ford Mustangs. They're identical. But um, it's quite possible that he comes back with a red Mustang and you come back with a green Mustang. So they're different. They're different versions, but of the, exactly the same vehicle. Now, uh, genes are like that. You get different versions. They're called alleles. That's a technical word, but I'll use the word version. Different versions of the same gene. And the argument for 10,000 atoms, is the way I put it in the book, uh, the argument turns upon the idea that Adam and Eve between them could have only had at most four different versions of a given gene. Mm. And those four versions could not have turned into the hundreds of versions that we see today or again, of a given gene. Now, the argument, the scientific argument, has been has been rebutted and contradicted by uh, Christian uh, geneticists, uh, who are equally well qualified, and they say no, it's perfectly possible, even by even by evolutionary mechanisms, uh, to get the modern diversity from a single pair. <clears throat> But uh, I want to uh, advance a, another argument, which is very much simpler. The starting point for the theistic evolution, 10,000 atoms scenario, is that Adam and Eve had four versions of each gene at the most mm -hmm. between them. But they only had four versions of a given gene if they had a mother and a father, because that's why we have four, uh, why we have two. Oh, yeah, versions that's a good each. point. Uh, and you see, if 
that there is therefore an evolutionary assumption already built into their argument because they are saying that Adam and Eve both had parents. Now the Bible, I believe, teaches that they didn't have parents, that they were special creations. They were not evolved from some lower life form, but that they were created uh, de novo by God as human beings, the only created creature uh, that was created in the image of God. Uh, and therefore, if Adam and Eve were created de novo, they could have been created with hundreds and thousands of different versions of their genes. God create, could have created them, in other words, with an extremely rich genome, which is the totality of all our DNA, mm -hmm. uh, and that, uh, that extremely rich genome would easily have accounted for what we find today. Furthermore, that would have made it possible for their children uh, to intermarry without it creating uh, genetic defects uh, as it would today. And intermarriage, of course, is, is banned between brothers and sisters uh, for that very reason. So that very rich genome would have kept uh, intermarriage as a, as a perfectly harmless and indeed necessary process uh, for multiple generations. Yeah, that, that, that is certainly one of the things that the critics will pick up on, isn't it? That uh, uh, how how do you have uh, people marrying their you know their brothers and sisters and uh, it 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 seems like with respect to that and what you've been talking about for the past few minutes that um, it all goes back to those pesky assumptions. Uh, if you in order to argue against the position that the Bible advances, it seems as though you have to assume uh, that what the Bible teaches is not the case uh, beforehand. <laughs> uh, before, Absolutely. Yeah, that that, that's really interesting. Very neatly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's interesting. So I'm sorry to interrupt you there. If, you, if there was more you wanted to say on that train of thought, uh, feel free. Um, no, I, I, th I think that covers that particular point. I okay. think we could move on to the uniqueness of man generally. Yeah, I'd like to do that. So, so uh, the image of God then, uh, you know, it's uh, theologians have wrestled with what this thing is for, for years, and we've, uh, uh, centuries even, and we've talked about it a little bit uh, in uh, previous episodes of our, of our podcast here. Um, but uh, what's interesting, I like the way that uh, in, in our discussions prior to, to getting on the interview here, um, you'd said that we have these, uh, this uniqueness, this biological, cultural, and mental uniqueness, and you say that these things can only be explained in the image of God. Uh, that is to say, there is no other coherent explanation. Can you speak to that a little bit? Uh, yes, certainly. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, let me give you a, a quote uh, to start with. Um, <clears throat> one of the founders of the uh, modern <clears throat> uh, synthesis, the modern mm -hmm. theory of uh, neo-Darwin evolution, 
was a Russian scientist called Theodosius Dobzhansky. Dobzhansky. Um, uh, you may have heard the name. Mm -hmm. And um, in 1958, that's just, um, just uh, 60 years ago, um, he wrote this. The most pressing problems of evolutionary biology seem at present to belong to two groups. Those concerned with the mechanics of evolution and those dealing with the biological uniqueness of man. So Dobzhansky, although he was um, a committed evolutionist uh, and indeed advanced evolutionary theory very strongly, nevertheless, uh, all those years ago, recognized that man was biologically unique, biologically unique, hmm. uh, not to mention unique in other ways. And uh, nothing has happened since then to solve the problem he recognized. In fact, uh, the problem actually got a great deal worse as a consequence of the advance of uh, the subject of genetics. And uh, the problems, the two problems he mentions, the mechanics of evolution, how in fact does it happen? Uh, and by evolution, I'm here talking about macro evolution, the um, um, molecules to man scenario, uh, not the small variations which we call microevolution, mm -hmm. which occur within species and um, can indeed be explained by, by Darwinian mechanisms. We're talking about the grand picture of uh, common descent. Yes. And uh, he recognized these two problems. Those two problems have grown very, very more acute. So much so that many secular uh, biologists and even evolutionists are saying Darwin's theory just doesn't work. We've got to find some alternative theory of evolution. Well, now, uh, <clears throat> I, I, I thought, uh, I wondered whether I could think of a way of illustrating in a simple manner this uniqueness of man, biological, cultural, and mental. And I came up with, with this picture. Um, think of a wedding, the marriage of a man and a woman. Think of a wedding. Yeah. Uh, now, all animals find mates, and human beings find mates. But their behavior diverges enormously uh, because animals don't have weddings <laughs> and and man has weddings and just think of what is involved in a wedding uh, first of all there's a great deal of mindful planning goes on usually, I'm generalizing, of course, sure. great deal of, of thoughtful planning. Dates are fixed, invitations are sent out, um, venue is booked, and, and, and so on and so forth. The arrangements are made with, the, uh, with, with a, a, a clergyman or, or for a secular wedding. It's a, it's a registry office, at least in, in Britain. Anyway, there are ways 
uh, of doing it, but it all has to be planned and thought out. Now, no animal gets involved in that. So man is unique in that respect. Mm. But then that's only the start. <clears throat> there is a good deal of skilled preparation necessary. Uh, for example, uh, a, a wedding dress uh, must be made or must have been made and purchased. Uh, and a wedding dress involves an enormous amount of manual dexterity on the part of the dressmaker. <laughs> Anim animals don't have manual dexterity in the way that human beings do. Uh, you'll never teach an animal to play the piano, for example. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, it's just impossible. Yeah, Man is unique in terms of his manual dexterity. Uh, well, then, of course, uh, the wedding moves on and you have some kind of, of um, ritual involved, a wedding ceremony, uh, very often a religious ceremony, but even if it's a, a secular ceremony, there is a ritual uh, to be gone through, uh, which involves other people, uh, particularly somebody officiating and, uh, and actually um, marrying the couple. Uh, animals don't do that. Animals do not have this kind of social interaction or social concept of what it means for a male and a female to get together and reproduce. Uh, this, is, this is uniquely human. Yeah. Uh, ritual, religious ritual, is uniquely human. In fact, in the book, um, you may have uh, notice this, I have a chapter uh, entitled Death and Taxes, <laughs> which are the two things that, um, that uh, Benjamin Franklin said um, uh, are unique to man. Hmm. Uh, and, and they are the two things that, that human beings worry about. There's nothing certain in life, sure. uh, he said. Uh, except death and taxes. Now, uh, I, I take that as a springboard um, uh, because um, it seems to me to, to, to characterize and highlight the uniqueness of man in the biosphere. And I spend a little time with a certain amount of humor uh, pointing out that that neither animals, uh, that, that, I'm sorry, that animals um, are neither worried about death, uh, nor are they bothered with taxes. But these things are uh, absolutely, absolutely uniform in human society. Mm -hmm. uh, death is, is, is a great preoccupation. Um, I, I checked out the amount of column inches in my newspaper the day I wrote that, uh, devoted in one way or another to the subject of death. And it turned out to be a huge proportion, 15% of the, of the newspaper, not including adverts and things like that, sure. 15% of the newspaper was devoted in one way or another to the subject of death. Wow. Uh, and, um, you know, we're preoccupied with death. Is any, is any television 
detective program uh, complete without a death or two? Mm. Not at all. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, is any soap opera complete without the occasional death among the cast, uh, among the 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 uh, fictitious cast, I mean, of course. Sure. Uh, no, I mean, we are preoccupied with death. We are fascinated by death and we are frightened of death. And what animal shares that concern? None whatsoever. Hmm. And I go, go into examples where people seem to think that animals have shown some sign of mourning their dead um, and, and there's no substance to that. Human beings are utterly unique in their attitude to death. Uh, the, all these ancient burials, and indeed even our modern burials, in some way uh, are intended to prepare us for the afterlife. Uh, the, the first uh, Chinese emperor had this vast number of terracotta uh, soldiers, warriors, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, huge um, mausoleum uh, that was buried with the emperor. Uh, they were going to accompany him into the afterlife and look after him there. He'd have his army there just as he had it in the life in the, this world. And uh, throughout ancient history, there's been this uh, this tendency to to prepare the dying uh, or the dead in their burial for another life. Animals don't do that. Hmm. So uh, the, the point is that that there is this fantastic um, difference uh, between all animals and man. And now why should man be so different if he is only uh, an over-evolved ape? Why on earth? Is he so utterly different, both in his uh, biology? Oh, I, I, I didn't actually finish my illustration. I was going to go on to say that, that there are speeches given uh, uh, at the wedding. Hmm. We have the power of speech. No animal does have that power. So we, we, have, we have attributes and powers that clearly do not derive from the animal kingdom. Sure. You know, this so sounds like the kind of thing that, um, you know, evolutionists want to say that, well, you know, we understand, you know, that this seems kind of fantastic, um, but you've neglected the fact uh, that the Earth is 4.5 billion years old and we've been evolving for a long time and uh and you know you're you're neglecting that over this vast amount of time uh animals could uh in fact have you know had, had been able to to develop these features that make them so I, I, unique i've got a i've got a beautiful answer to that which i'll give you now <laughs> okay um <clears throat> it's in the book but um, it's one of my favorite arguments, actually. Uh, and it is, it is this. It's um, really, I call it the horse race illustration. All right. Um, <clears throat> let's just take a relatively recent bit of the evolution, evolutionary picture. Uh, that is the, their belief 
that the closest relative biologically to man is the chimpanzee. Okay. Yes. Um, and so let's just think about humans and chimpanzees. Now, the, <clears throat> the narrative we're given is that something like 6 million to 13 million years ago, um, people disagree, but it doesn't really make any difference to the story. Uh, something like 6 to 13 million years ago, human beings and chimpanzees had a common ancestor. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's called the LCA, the last common ancestor. Mm -hmm. And from that animal, which is completely unknown, of course, right. um, from that animal, but if you think of the animals as the trunk of the tree, uh, then two branches uh, split out. One branch which ultimately led to chimpanzees and the other branch which ultimately led to man. Okay, well, this is, this is the scenario. And so let's think about it. The last common ancestor was a single animal. That, that's, that's what you mean by a, a common ancestor. Sure. And there's one branch that leads to chimpanzees, modern chimpanzees, and a, a, another branch that leads to modern human beings. Now, we know... <clears throat> what the mutation rates are for chimpanzees and human beings. In fact, they say that the mutation rate for chimpanzees in the past was 50% greater than the mutation rate for human beings. Now, this is, this is really quite important because evolution occurs by mutations, the theory claims right. that the starting point for evolution is a, a mutation in the genetic material. Uh, now, good mutations are then selected out by natural selection so that uh, population improves its quality, improves its, uh, its, its, its uh, viability, uh, improves its adaptation to its environment. And that's the way uh, animals evolve. Okay, so we've got <clears throat> chimpanzees uh, evolving at 50% faster than human beings. Uh, now, of course, uh, uh, most, most mutations are damaging. Sure. But e evolution simply says, well, if they're damaging, they're, they're damaging and they don't get preserved. It's only the good mutations that that somehow uh, give the creature um, uh, 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 lift up the evolutionary tree that are preserved. Well, okay, let's accept that for the moment. Uh, so chimpanzees have mutations 50% faster than humans, and some of them are good and equally for the human branch. Now, the mutation rates today for chimpanzees and humans are the same. Hmm. So even if we take that simplifying picture, they've got two branches. They're both, they're both experiencing beneficial mutations at the same rate. And as a result of that, and natural selection, which is a matter of environment, mm -hmm. uh, they are 
they're evolving along separate branches. Now, you then ask the evolutionist what he thinks the last common ancestor uh, might have been like. And of course, they don't know, they hum and they ha, they say, well, probably something like a chimpanzee. Right. Uh, oh, right. So we've got chimpanzees evolving from something like a chimpanzee at the same rate or perhaps even faster hmm. than human beings evolve from that last common ancestor. And what's the result today? Yeah. Hmm. Uh, the chimpanzees, chimpanzees. Are, are, still, are still chimpanzees. Right. Uh, they're still apes, great apes. They haven't changed very much. Um, human beings, meanwhile, have used their mutations, their beneficial mutations, uh, to much greater advantage. They have managed to um, they've managed to um, evolve speech, uh, master fire, invent tools, produce art, produce music, produce literature, hmm. produce mathematics, produce medicine, produce science, produce engineering, produce space exploration, <laughs> and on the way, they've learned how to build zoos right. to accommodate chimpanzees. <laughs> that seems now, quite fantastic. And, and, and why I call it the horse race uh, argument is that um, you can picture this process by, by a two-horse race. And um, they're starting from the starting gate, and this is when you've got the last common ancestor. And the gate opens, <clears throat> and the horses set off. But while one horse sets off down the race course, heading for the finishing post, uh, the other horse just stands around the starting gate, nibbling the grass. And it doesn't get anywhere. It makes no progress. Yeah. Now, if that happened, and you can you can amplify it by putting six different great apes in the starting gates, if you like, but it comes to the same thing. Sure. If that happened, and, and five of the six uh, horses just stayed nibbling grass around the starting gate, and only one horse headed for the finishing post, you would think it was a fixed race. <laughs> Someone had fixed that race. Right. You would not believe that it was genuine. Well, that's why... I say the evolutionary race is fixed. It's not a, not a genuine race. And the reason it's not a genuine race is that man is not part of that evolutionary scenario. Even if that is true, man doesn't belong to it. Hmm. I mean, I question it in any case. Sure. Uh, but, but human beings were created, according to the Bible, de novo by God, and they were created in his image. And that means not a physical image because God is a spirit. Sure. But mm -hmm. the image of God, and I spent a whole chapter on this subject, the image of God involves what we call the communicable attributes of God mm -hmm. being bestowed upon man. 
And those attributes are things like speech and language, uh, things like love and emotion, um, uh, things like the capacity to uh, understand and obey law, uh, things like soul and spirit, uh, th things that that attributes of God that that can be communicated to other beings, uh, things like God's uh, uh, omniscience, His omnipresence, uh, his, his His ability to create, His being the source of all life. These are things He cannot communicate to other creatures. They belong to Him alone. But there are all kinds of attributes of God that can be communicated. And that is, I believe, what he did when he planted his image in man. He communicated those abilities, those mm -hmm. attributes uh, to the newly created Adam and Eve uniquely. Yeah. Didn't, didn't communicate them to any other created being. That certainly does. And, and you know, there's certainly, uh, you know, some great scientists and organizations have, have gone into kind of the minutia of this. But if you just, if, if you just stop thinking, uh, uh, you know, so hard about it, and you just take a 35,000 foot view, and you start to look at the overall story, uh, and you consider things like the uniqueness of, of man, it's kind of like, well, you know what makes more sense? You know if what, what you know, and I'm not necessarily saying that we do science uh, by our common sense. Uh, as a physicist, I think you should know that that uh, science doesn't work by common sense. But um, we're dealing with more than science here. When we consider the world, there are more ways to um, come to know things uh, than just science. And when we consider um, uh, some things about our history, when we consider all those points, I loved all the different points of uniqueness that, that you brought out. Um, that was just wonderful. And it illustrates on such a grand scale um the point, the, uh, just how different we are and, and how, you know, what makes sense of this? We learn in the Bible about a God who has um, these capacities that you've demonstrated that we seem to share some of, uh, and that certainly seems to make more sense, uh, at least to, to somebody like me. <laughs> Um, so I, I want to, uh, I want to begin to, to talk about the, the, the biblical side of, of things. There is one more thing maybe that I'd like to, to touch on though, on the science end. Um, I'm sure you're familiar, especially being where you are, um, with the discussions that took place. I want to say it was in, in 20. 16 there was a meeting of the the royal society does this sound familiar to you yes okay yes. um and in that and i don't know uh, you know you might know more details about this than me and again this is a bit of an excursus from the topic uh but i think it illustrates a good point there seems to me to be a different idea of what exactly evolution is capable of explaining. There seems to be a, a big disconnect uh, between what the the majority of the population, even those who teach it, um, believe about what the Darwinian mechanism is able to accomplish, and what those who are deeply ingrained in the science, um, the leading evolutionary biologists today, uh, seem to be questioning 
actually that evolution as the general theory of evolution as it is understood right now they seem to be questioning whether or not uh it is actually capable of producing i'm guessing a lot of those qualities that that you've mentioned we are we are so unique that there seems to be a huge gap there is is that the impression that you got from that royal society meeting um uh, yes uh the <clears throat> I wasn't present at the meeting, but sure. I read uh, reports of it. And both camps actually were represented. There were <clears throat> those who are asserting very, very clearly that the traditional Darwinian mechanisms just are uh, completely incapable of accounting for evolution. Uh, in other words, they just don't work. Uh, and there are many reasons for that, sure, sure. Um, some of which I deal with in the book. Um, yeah, I, uh, yeah. And, um, I just think it's important to highlight um, that there are people questioning, you know, the, the and again, we don't have to, you're welcome to go into as much detail about it that you know as you want to. But um, the main point that I'd like to, to get across is that there are, there are those questioning the ability of this mechanism uh, that aren't even, I mean, they're not Christians. Um, That's right. That's right. Yes. Uh, and they're questioning it purely from a scientific viewpoint. Um, <clears throat> and of course, it, it, that has been happening. I mean, I wrote a book uh, back in 1978, hmm. or was it 76? 76, I think, uh, called From Nothing to Nature. It, it was a, a book written for teenagers about the, the improbabilities of evolution, basically. <laughs> and um, when I debated... Um, uh, Richard Dawkins uh, at the Oxford um, Oxford Huxley Memorial debate that was in 1986. Um, uh, he actually had read that book, and he he attacked me for the contents of the book. Um, but um, in that book, I was pointing out these very things, and we're talking now about back in in 19. 1980, 1970, late 1970s. And I wasn't the first one to be pointing these things out. So this really goes back a long time. It's not just very recent. Uh, the absolute impossibility of um, the Darwinian mechanism uh, being able to produce the teeming biosphere that we know today. And, and of course, um, the the uh, intelligent design people have been um, uh, banging this particular drum, I think, very effectively yeah. in recent years. Well, now, uh, at that Royal Society meeting, there were also uh, a number of traditional uh, Darwinian evolutionists who said that these newcomers were, were, were not correct. And although they admitted that there were new mechanisms being discovered like epigenetics, which I spend some time on in the book mm -hmm. um, and explain it in layperson friendly terms. Um, th there are all kinds of, of 
new ideas coming in. Uh, the fact is, of course, that most of these people uh, who are producing new ideas are still trying to generate a theory of evolution which leaves God out of the picture. Mm. Uh, and, and that is unfortunate because uh, they're, they're, they're proving that the hitherto accepted evolutionary mechanisms uh, just don't work. Uh, and so they're trying to come up with other evolutionary mechanisms that will work. Mm. Uh, but to some extent, the traditional Darwinians have a point because uh, the things that are being brought up as new mechanisms are what we might call peripheral things. They're, 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 they're real but they are not themselves capable of accounting for, um, for macroevolution. Hmm. So, okay, they're, they're chucking out the standard Darwinian uh, narrative uh, and they're saying there are all other kinds of ways by which um, uh, animals can evolve, but none of those ways as yet has proved to be uh, sufficiently powerful to bring about the changes that have got to be explained if evolution is true. Hmm. And and I don't I don't think I think what they've done is they've muddied the waters without um, without leading us to any really effective new explanation. And I don't think that new explanation will ever be found as long as God is left out of the equation. Yeah, that's that, that's interesting, and a good point to make on that is that um, it's not it's not as though we're arguing for a God of the gaps here. And I love how the intelligent design community really, really stresses this point that we're not going off of information that we don't have. Um, we're looking at what we do have and, and what we do see, uh, and it certainly seems consistent, uh, at least you know, to, to most of us here, um, with what we see in the Bible. And what's really disturbing to me is the kind of um, maybe a maybe a lighthearted way of putting it would be that uh, most of the um, evolutionary biologist, uh, most of that community is putting a kind of faith in naturalism. Uh, it's almost a, a Darwin of the gaps kind of thing. I like to call it, um, where there is this hopeful expectation that a mechanism will arise that allows organisms to really evolve and get the kind of things that we need to see via, uh, Darwinian or, or excuse me, uh, Darwinian means. And they, uh, they kind of, um, they praise this as though it's a virtue. Um, it's a virtue, in other words, to remain skeptical and to say that we're, we're hopeful to find an explanation. And while from a scientific standpoint, I certainly understand that we don't have all the questions answered. Uh, I mean, I have uh, models that I confidently hold to today and even argue for, um, in you know the the public domain of ideas uh, that I still have questions about, and so I understand on one hand um, that that is okay, but then on the other hand, I, I just want to say, at what point are you just using a priori assumptions to to say um, that you must 
have some sort of naturalistic mechanism for this. I don't know how you would escape that it's faith in naturalism. Um, that's what it seems like it is, it is to me. So I, I want to move on um, and and talk about uh, probably, although what we have talked about has certainly been important and insightful, um, I, I think uh, it is important that we begin to look at this um from a biblical perspective. Well, um, if, if I can just, um, if I can just run through uh, my arguments here um, briefly, without uh, hopefully without getting sidetracked, but do do come back, of course, uh, on anything you want to question. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. My my belief. This is where I finish up in the book. This is the final section of the book, which is the biblical answer to the question, what is man? And I am maintaining that the Bible testifies uniformly to the historical reality of Adam and Eve as the sole progenitors of the human race and the historical reality of their fall into sin. And then I, I, I like to bring out a, a number, uh, I think it's five I've got written down here, um, arguments from the Bible. Now, if people don't believe the Bible, then all this is irrelevant. But I'm, in this case, really addressing people who do believe the Bible, uh, who are at least Christians, but who still subscribe to Adam and Eve being mythological rather than real. Now, the first argument I think is a strong one, and, and I think it's a novel argument. I haven't seen it uh, anywhere else. That is, I'm not saying I'm the first one to use it, but uh, I haven't seen it anywhere else. There are... In the Bible, <clears throat> three genealogies that trace humanity back to Adam. And in each case, they work back from known historical characters, like Abraham, for example, mm. to those who feature in the earlier chapters of Genesis, including Adam himself. Um, the first of these three genealogies is in Genesis chapters 5, 10, and 11, uh, uh, interspersed with narrative of events, but it's the same, same genealogy running right through those, those chapters. Um, uh, the second one is in um, 1 Chronicles chapter 1, and the third one is the genealogy of Christ in Luke chapter 3. Now, what you find in all of those genealogies is, if you're thinking of working backwards, some of them work forwards, some of them work backwards, but if you're thinking of working backwards, um, you, you go from known historical characters like Abraham or David and Moses and Abraham, um, and then you disappear into what we might call prehistory. Mm. You start getting names that that 
are unknown from any other historical source. And that goes all the way back to Adam. Now, the interesting thing I find is that those genealogies are seamless. They're working from historical characters back into uh, prehistorical characters, which the theistic evolutionist has to say are, are mythical. But those people writing the genealogies clearly believed that um, Adam and Abel um, and all those early names, Noah, um, were just as real as the known historical characters that come later or earlier if you're working backwards. So uh, it, it's clear to me, and I don't think anyone can really argue against this, it's clear to me that the people who wrote those gene genealogies truly believed that all the names in the genealogy were names of real people. Otherwise, you get a rather silly situation. Let's suppose that you were tracing <clears throat> you, you were tracing your family tree back, and uh, you managed to go back generation after generation after generation. You might get back to the, the 15th century, 14th century, 12th century, but then sooner or later, uh, you're going to have to stop because there's there's no further information on your particular family tree. So what do you do? Well, if you've got any sense, you stop and say, that's as far as I can go. But if you do what the biblical genealogists are alleged to have done, you would say, oh, that's not a problem. I, I get to the point where there's no further information. And so I'm going to add on some names, some fictitious names like Harry Potter, Mickey Mouse, Dan Dare, Snow White, <laughs> and the Seven Dwarves. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, you wouldn't do, no intelligent person would do that. And yet that is what the genealogists in the Bible are being accused of doing. Hmm. That they've gone back as far as they can in history. And then because there is no history before that, they've just invented names and personalities. Now that to me is extremely unlikely. And the genealogies incidentally were written by three different people, these three genealogies. There are other genealogies in the Bible, of course, but these are the ones that trace humanity back to Adam. Okay, so that's the first thing. Um, let's move on then to another argument in favor of a historic uh, Adam and Eve. And that is that when we come to the New Testament, uh, we find that, that Jesus himself bases his teaching on marriage, on the historical reality of Adam and Eve, including the details of their creation, like Eve was taken out of Adam. And that's in Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 6, Mark chapter 10, verses 6 to 12. So Jesus bases a very important piece of his teaching on the reality of Adam and Eve and the way they were created. Now, 
if we do believe that Jesus was the Son of God, and if we do believe that he knew what he was talking about, then he could not have done that if Adam and Eve were not genuine people, if they were not created by God in the beginning. Hmm. Third argument from within Scripture, in, in, uh, in Acts, the Epoch of Acts, chapter 17 and verse 26, Paul is preaching at Athens uh, to the Athenian philosophers. He's not preaching to Jews or to Christians, preaching to uh, pagan people, idol worshippers. And he says this. He says that God made, this is the quote, made from one man every nation of men to dwell on the earth. Acts chapter 17 and verse 26, and that's the um, ESV uh, translation. God made from one man, an uh, older translation say one blood, but it's the same thing, of course, the same, same family. God made from one man or the same family every nation of men to dwell on the earth. Mm. So Paul is declaring that the entire human race descended from Adam. Wow. In, in, uh, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, which is known often as the great faith chapter, uh, chapter all about faith, uh, the writer to Hebrews catalogues the heroes of faith all the way back to Abel, the second son of Adam and Eve. It doesn't mention Adam, but uh, if Adam is fictitious, then uh, I'm quite sure you'd accept that Abel must be fictitious as well. Absolutely. Um, and as, as in the genealogies, the writer has no, no need to invent fictitious prehistorical characters. In fact, he has less reason to do it than the genealogists, uh, because he could very well, he's just trying to illustrate um, how faith works. And so he's just picking up people who, who demonstrated outstanding faith in the Old Testament. Now, if, he, if he'd gone back um, to the historical character, to Abraham, he spent some time with Abraham, he could have then effectively said, well, uh, sorry, uh, uh, there's nobody before Abraham that we know anything about. <laughs> uh, uh, so I'll, I'll stop with Abraham. He would have made his point perfectly well. He didn't need to go back beyond Abraham to establish what he wanted to establish. He'd already done it. But he does go back. He goes back to, to Noah, uh, to a man called Enoch, uh, who walked with God, we're told, and to Abel, who made the first animal sacrifice. Why did he do that? Well, he does it because he believes that they were real people and that it's some value in parading, if you like, uh, demonstrating uh, their faith in God. So I think that's quite a powerful, uh, uh, powerful argument because, as I say, in Hebrews, there's absolutely no need for him to go back into fictitious prehistory. Um, because he, he, he can do what he wants to do, establish 
examples of faith from known historical characters. Then uh, there's something that you perhaps wouldn't really uh, notice uh, if you didn't, weren't looking for it, and that is in Jude, um, the little letter of Jude that comes immediately before the book of Revelation. Um, it's only one chapter, so it's verse 14. It refers to a prophecy by Enoch, the seventh from Adam. That those are his words. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, and then he details the prophecy uh, about the return of Christ and so on. Now, Jude didn't have to do that. If he didn't think that, that Enoch, the prophet, prophet concerned, and Adam, uh, his pre predecessor, if he didn't think those people were real people, then what, why did he use this argument? It would be very silly of him to do so. So clearly he believes that they were genuine historical people. And then the final thing, uh, when we come to um, further teaching of Paul, is this. If Adam and Eve did not exist as real people, then there is no such thing as sin. Because animals are not moral creatures. And if man is simply a highly evolved animal, uh, he is no more a moral creature, therefore no more responsible for sin than uh, your pet dog who walks into the kitchen and leaves muddy footprints across the floor. <laughs> mm. uh, you, you, do, you, you may scold the dog. I'm sure you would scold the dog. But you, you wouldn't accuse it of sin because it's not a moral creature. So if Adam and Eve uh, were not different, if they were not created in the image of God, if they are simply over-evolved animals, then you have no definition of sin because they never, never fell. They were never made perfect and they never disobeyed God and rebelled against him. Um, I'm, I'm sure uh, you're familiar with the concept of uh, quality control in factories. Sure. Uh, in a factory, uh, they have quality control standards. In other words, there is a specification for whatever they make, whether it's cameras or, or, or cups and saucers. Uh, there's a specification for what, what is acceptable and what is not. And they will actually have uh, usually uh, physical examples of something that meets the specification, something to compare what you're making today with uh, to be sure that what you're making today is up to standard. So quality control is very important in industry. Now, you can't have a failure in a factory if there is no quality control, <laughs> because there's nothing, nothing to compare it with. Sure. You say this this camera doesn't work, but uh, but hey, it's a camera. It doesn't matter. Uh, um, this cup and saucer has got a crack in it, but but hey, there's there's no no quality control. Mm -hmm. There's nothing to say what is acceptable and what is not. Now, if Adam and Eve had not been real people created 
innocence that is perfect, morally perfect. And if they had not thereby established the quality that God requires of man, and then if they had not fallen from that by rebellion against God, then I suggest there is no such thing as sin. You have to have a real Adam and Eve. You have to have a real perfect quality control example at the beginning. God said after he created Adam and Eve, he, he said everything he saw, he pronounced very good. So they were perfect. They were innocent. They were clean. And then they fell. Uh, if, if that sequence of events did not occur, if it's all mythology, then you have no definition of sin. And therefore, you have no sin, and therefore you need no gospel. Hmm. Yeah, that's <laughs> the implications of that um, are astounding. I, I mean, I've had, uh, and I don't know if you've noticed this trend over the years to kind of redefine what we mean by the word inerrancy when we start talking about um, the Bible. Right. But yeah. uh, I yeah. have been in discussions with theistic evolutionists who I've, I've brought up um, some of these very similar points. I've, I've brought up uh, Jesus' teaching on the matter and, and Paul's teaching on the matter. Um, and they have, in some cases, conceded um with seemingly no problem uh, certainly with much less problem that I would have been comfortable with they have conceded that yes this is what Jesus and Paul uh just to use those two examples there are others but to use those two examples they have conceded that Jesus and Paul were in fact both wrong um because Modern science is uh, supposedly the arbiter of what we know for sure is true, and the uh, majority of uh, scientific belief on a on a subject matter that might seem to not uh, play so well with the Bible, if you pit that majority against Jesus, um, apparently Jesus was was wrong, and there's rationale that's been offered uh, for this. Uh, you know, they just they just. Um, submitted to what was the current uh, belief in that day of, of Jews in that day. But then I have to stop and ask the question, well, why do you think that that was the belief of, of the day? And I think it's because that's what their, what their scriptures, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible has taught all of this time as well. And so we can't just um, get around this problem and getting around this problem by calling the Son of God uh, at worst a liar, uh, or at best, somebody who was just tremendously misinformed, uh, to me, that's not solving a problem at all. That's creating a worse one. <laughs> um, at, at least with inerrancy, we can work with the fact that there are maybe some different definitions to affirm, but uh, I have a hard time you know, coming in and saying that Jesus might have been wrong about something. Um <clears throat> What about uh, uh, this idea, uh, and I don't know how much work you've done on this or looking into this, but uh, this idea that Adam could just have, have been an archetype, 
I mean, does that does that work? Do we really have to have a historical event, or can can Adam just kind of be representative of what we all know is true? Uh, I mean, we all, you know, I wake up every morning, and um, uh, you know, uh, my wife by the end of the day has has let me know I'm a sinner multiple times over for different things, and I'm sure I've uh, done the same thing with her. Uh, I think we all know by intuition that something is broken and wrong in the world. Do you have any thoughts as to why we still have to think of Adam as actually being important? Well, I, 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 th- I think that, <clears throat> that people who adopt that position uh, simply have no explanation. I mean, to say that Adam is an archety- archetype is uh, it, it's not an explanation of, of anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just kind of a cop-out, really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, what they're saying is we are projecting our current... Um, we are projecting our current experience uh, of the human condition uh, back upon history and inventing uh, um, a fictitious narrative of how we got to be that way. Okay, Uh, right, it's fictitious. Therefore, it's not true. Right. (laughs) Therefore, it's no explanation. Sure. You're still left with the question of why are we as we are but if, if, if adam, adam uh, is a uh, was a real character then it all follows it is an explanation of our human condition today and our problem and our need for the christian gospel but 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 if if you simply say we're projecting our present human condition back uh, upon uh, uh, and creating a fictitious narrative to account for it. You're not explaining anything. You're just stuck with what we are today, and you have no explanation for it, whatever, because the only explanation um, uh, that is offered is a fictitious one. So you've got to throw it out, out of the window. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's a nonsense argument, really. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. You're right. Um, and uh, a new proposal, and uh, um, you know, this maybe this will be one of the the final things we 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 talk about here. But um, certainly related to this uh, is there is this idea that the Bible is not dealing with um, matters of of science at all. Now I'm not talking about, there's kind of a broad discussion that is an interesting discussion versus concordism and non-concordism as to what the Bible is teaching. And, and I have my views on that and, and others have theirs. But recently there has been this discussion around, well, maybe it's possible that that both are true. Maybe Genesis one and two and, and, and three and so on are describing a, creation of man in the garden and so forth and so on um uh, made in the image of god a special creation de novo as it were uh but then outside of the garden um the darwinian process uh was just uh, headed right along uh, like everyone uh 
modern scientists are expecting it too. So in other words, there's this new, uh, and this is a very, as far as I know, this is a very new position coming along the scene that we actually have both an evolutionary process coming alongside of a special creation. Um, and I think the way that they, they make the distinction is they say that the Bible is not addressing a genetic Adam, it's addressing a genealogical Adam. So I think that by this reckoning, they would want to, um, they would want to escape kind of the horns of that dilemma by saying that we could still use some of the genealogical arguments and things that you've put forth. Uh, but the evolutionary process was going on all the time. Uh, as new as this proposal is, I certainly don't expect you to have formulated thoughts on it, although you might have. Um, but is there anything intrinsic to the narrative in, in, in Genesis one, um, and following that makes us think that we should believe that that won't work either. I mean, will that work? Is that a legitimate proposal that the Bible just is concerned exclusively with theological matters? Uh, well, no, and, and it's, it's not new, actually. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I address, uh, I mean, it, it used to be called uh, complementarity. Okay. That, that you, you, have, um, you have a true, uh, a true biblical narrative and you have a true scientific narrative and um, they, uh, they're parallel, they're both true, but they're different. Um, <clears throat> different ways of um, of understanding hmm. uh, and and the the illustration that always used to be given I, I wrote to some length about this in my 1976 book from nothing to nature so it's it's quite an old idea well, yeah I'm, I'm, uh, I'm behind apparently <laughs> yeah um, uh, the uh, the illustration they they used to give in those days was think of a painting um, and a well-known painting and uh, you can do a scientific analysis of the painting uh, you can measure the the elements in the pigments um, uh, point by point uh, you can measure the thickness of the pigment point by point you can measure the background, the canvas, or whatever it's painted on. In other words, you can analyze the picture um, in a, a scientific manner in such a detailed manner that you could then go away with all that data and reproduce the picture perfectly. Hmm. Okay, so that's the that's the scientific uh, uh, narrative of the picture. Uh, but equally, uh, you could look at the picture and you could uh, ask questions about the purpose uh, of the artist, why he painted it. Uh, you could ask questions about his technique and his, um, his, his, his method of painting. Uh, you can ask questions about the message that he was trying to get across uh, to the person who viewed the painting. And you could do that in sufficient detail, describe the brush, brush strokes and, uh, and, and the colors, you could do that in sufficient detail to allow somebody to reproduce the picture perfectly. But they are two completely 
complementary accounts or descriptions of the same object. Hmm. And, and that was the way the complementarity principle was, was presented. Um, but the, uh, back in, in that uh, old book, I, I argued that uh, that's all very well, but if you present that picture of the Bible and its message, uh, then you leave it open to a person to say, "Well, I'll I'll take the I'll take the scientific version, and I don't want the other. I don't want the the other. I don't want to know why or reasons. I don't want to know about God or spirituality. I don't want to know about Christ or history. Um, I, I just accept the the version, the complementary version that suits me." Uh, you, you actually cut the ground from under the gospel, which is the gospel for all people, a gospel that everybody needs. Hmm. And it doesn't work, in fact, because it, it, it's, it's a theoretical view or understanding of the Bible that, that doesn't stand up to a reading of the Bible, because the Bible says a great deal about um, the causation of physical phenomena. Mm, yeah, and historical phenomena. Uh, you know, it 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 has has no hesitation in attributing uh, the very existence of the cosmos to God. I mean, uh, in Hebrew, Hebrews chapter one and verse three, uh, we're told that that Christ, um, uh, being uh, the express image of the Father of God, uh, and the and, and and the brightness of His glory, mm. uh, upholds all things by the word of His power. And and in Colossians one verse sixteen, I think it is, um, we're told that in Him, that is in Christ, all things hold together. All things consist. Mm. In other words, the Bible. Uh, not only doesn't allow us to make the separation they're trying to make into two complementary uh, narratives, uh, but it tells us that the very material cosmos depends for its very existence upon God. Hmm. And uh, to some extent, I go into this in the cosmological part of the book, um, What is Man? Because I actually use the atheist's cosmological arguments as of today, they change, but uh, I actually use their own arguments to prove what I call the necessity of God. And, and yeah. very briefly, the argumentation is that, that um, uh, the laws of nature uh, have to be have to have been put in place in order for a cosmos to come into being. The laws of nature had to be generated, and those laws of nature could not have pre-existed nature because they are the descriptions of nature. Mm, right. Uh, and, and the laws of nature are mathematical. The laws of nature are undoubtedly mathematical, and therefore they needed a mathematical mind to generate them and to make them operate.
And so it, it all hangs together very nicely in terms of the idea of upholding all things by the word of the power of Christ. Mm. Um, yeah, the, and the, so the Bible certainly, uh, it'd be ha- awfully hard to make this distinction because the Bible certainly does seem to be speaking to uh, matters, like you said, of causation and material origin and things like that. Um, in other words, it, it, it's, it would seem that uh, if you don't, if you don't understand, and one way that uh, Greg Kokel puts it, that I, I've just latched onto this because I love the way he puts it, is that the Bible is is meaning to tell the story of reality. It, it, it's meaning to deal with reality, and so it seems it, it seems to me that if you if you take this this view and perhaps perhaps realizing this is why the view didn't survive and, and maybe it's because uh, I have not heard about this but and maybe this little resurgence that's coming up um, perhaps it will it will die the death of of, of well, I don't know a good thing to say there but perhaps it will go out as well the candle will burn out on that as well but um, it seems to me that the the Bible is dipping into uh, if it's not explaining the whole thing, there are many places within the Bible that seem to be speaking to the nature of actual reality that that those statements then become meaningless um, if it's not the case that the Bible means to be addressing them. Uh, and so now we have kind of the, the same problem, but happening on the other end. Now uh, we've got a Bible who we can't uh, we can't trust on theological grounds because it's not supposed to be speaking to scientific to put it one way uh, grounds but it is um it does seem to be commenting on those things so now we have to explain away different portions of the bible uh it seems the only way to to take the whole picture is to understand that god meant to tell us how he did things um uh, to some degree when he did things um and uh to understand that the process no process happens apart apart from him and he meant to tell us uh everything that we have in the word of god are things that god meant to communicate to us and um to to speculate outside of of that really is a is a denial i guess of god's ability to to communicate um, in some sense so, uh, well, that's great. Dr. Andrews, I want to say, I certainly appreciate you coming on, uh, and dealing with this today. I mean, this is a, a hot sub a subject, uh, and a really, um, uh, hotly debated topic. Certainly today, you and I, uh, kind of traffic in some of the same circles and, um, have even been involved in many of the same conversations, um, on, on the internet and such. And, uh, it's amazing to me that, people are very unwilling in some cases to listen to good argumentation on this. Uh, it, you, it's kind of just your arguments. And when I say you, I mean our arguments and, and arguments of those who hold things to be like us. Um, they're kind of just dismissed in the wake of, of modern science. The majority, I have no problem with science. It's this idea that the majority rules. Um, and as a scientist, uh, as you have been, I don't think uh, that you would subscribe to that notion that the majority rules. It seems to me that in the history of science, the exact opposite has been the case. Um, well, the, the way I, I like to put it is this. <clears throat> uh, science can only give half an explanation of anything mm. because science cannot explain itself. And by that I mean 
that science cannot explain the origin and nature of the laws of science. And science doesn't exist without the laws of science or nature. So science has no means of explaining why the laws of nature that it studies uh, are, are as they are. It has no way of knowing how they came into existence. It has no way of knowing um, uh, what their significance is. So it cannot explain itself. Uh, actually, this is an argument I used when I debated Richard Dawkins. Um, science is only half an explanation of anything. Even ultimate science, when everything's been discovered, as it were, when they've got the theory of everything, uh, it will still only be half an explanation because it cannot explain itself. Wow. Uh, yeah. and, and and that, to me, is, is a most powerful argument, whereas the Bible provides us with that missing explanation mm. that, 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 that God in Christ upholds all things by the word of his power that the laws of nature, therefore, are the, the as it were, the, the commands of God. And the um, ultimate reality, therefore, must be God. And the laws of nature are a manifestation and a demonstration of his reality, of his existence, and of his ultimate sovereign power hmm. that, that, wow that's incredible i mean uh, just to think about that uh it, really it's mind-boggling and i love the way you put that science um can only explain half of, of of anything and even when you have a theory of everything you're still missing half the story um because science cannot give that explanation for itself and this is something that seems evident and um, and we're almost done here, but th this is something that seems evident when you look at those who want to argue that universes can can come into existence from nothing. And I think uh, you and me and probably most of those who listen to my podcast um, have actually dealt with this on one episode. Um, I, I think we all understand that when um, when uh, cosmologists, in a certain sense, and astrophysicists argue that the word nothing does not mean the same thing that most people understand the word nothing to mean. But the point I want to get to is that it seems that there is just this one exception. If you're going to leave God out of the picture, now I want to be careful to say that it's not that we're inserting God in a gap in our knowledge. It's based on what we know the 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 story of the, the reality of wor of the world uh, that the bible offers seems to make the most sense of this and in fact it's the atheist or the unbeliever who needs an exception in the very beginning to get these laws to get a universe to get uh, uh to get life to to get these things um it seems like there has to be some kind of unknown just exception uh in the very, very beginning from the way that we understand that things work now. And it's no surprise that one argues that if you have that exception, that you can then explain everything else um, with just so stories. But in fact, they're just stories. Um, so, uh, Dr. Andrews, again, I, I want to say thank you so much for, for coming along and uh, talking with us about this. It's been a great conversation. Um, where can we learn more about the kind of things that you're you're doing? It looks like, uh, to me, even in retirement, you're writing books and, and pastoring a church and um, and really staying active. Is there somewhere we can go to learn more about, about you uh, and what you're doing? 
well, I, I think that the books are the most important thing from my point of view. Okay. Uh, and uh, if you can just point out that the books are available uh, from the normal online suppliers like Amazon. Um, the two, book, two books really are most important, the uh, 2009 book entitled Who Made God? Searching for a Theory of Everything, and the book published just this month, or released just this month, is What is Man? Adam, alien, or ape? Question marks, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if 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 people uh, read those two books, and by the way, the um, if people find them too expensive to buy from Amazon, uh, the Amazon Kindle versions, the e-books, are very cheap. The, the Amazon price for the uh, new book is only four dollars for the ebook for the mm. Kindle version. It's a great deal. And it's actually it's actually free. The other book is actually free in its Kindle version. You don't have to pay anything for it. Well, that's a blessing. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, that, so, that, so, yeah. Go ahead. Know, people can, can can get the books if they really want them. I mean, I'd like them to buy the paperback books because they can then lend them to other people and uh, and, and sort of generate interest among their churches and friends so clearly i want people to buy the paperback but but um there's no reason for people not acquainting themselves with um my uh position and my arguments on these very important matters so so that's that's really the most important thing um there is a um i do have a wiki wikipedia entry they can look me up on wikipedia uh, and i have um, uh, podcasts and they are on www edgar andrews as a single word dot podomatic.com and there are a whole a lot of bible exposition a lot of preaching there on the podomatic one, but also a number of videos um, associated with the new book, which people I think would find interesting. All right, that's yeah, that's excellent. And uh, one thing is for sure, uh, you uh, don't have to believe that there are no um, no intelligent scientists, no um, intelligent persons who are who are Christians. Uh, some of the most intelligent people of days gone by um, have been. Uh, followers of Jesus and have um, have made God their top priority in their life, and so uh, certainly this is true um, <laughs> to, to to see a life of dedication uh, in Dr. Edgar Andrews, and we certainly have been thrilled and uh, and honored to have you on here today, sir. So thank you so much for coming out and talking with us uh, here on the Creation Academy, and uh, hopefully we will see you down the road. Right. Thank All you very much. Thank you, sir. Bye bye. Goodbye, Steve. All right. Well, I want to thank you for joining in uh, on this week's lesson of the Creation Academy. Certainly, um, what a great conversation that was with Dr. Edgar Andrews. Um, really thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed uh, our conversation together. Uh, Adam was a historical figure. 
There is just no getting around that. And I realized that uh, this particular lesson has gone a little longer than maybe we normally would, but I guarantee that um, you have gleaned a lot from this lesson, and I know uh, that you uh, will find it useful as you aim to be persuasive, uh, showing others that certainly we need a historical Adam if we're going to account for sin, if we're going to account for uh, the Bible's understanding of reality, we're going to need to include a historical Adam in that. And, uh, and I certainly think, as Dr. Andrews has argued, we have good reason to do just that. So thank you for joining us this week on the Creation Academy. Let's say a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. I want to say thank you for the powerful confirmation that your word um, gives of what we see in your world. It's uh, absolutely astounding, Lord, that you would give us the ability to know you and communicate with you. Father, help us as we fight for truth, Lord, in this day and as we aim to... Um, be uh, powerful agents for your cause. I pray, Father, that you would give us the power and unction and ability that we need to be able to accomplish such a task. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us this week on the Creation Academy. Next week, we are... Um, looking at a flood of evidence. We want to deal with what happened in the biblical flood. The specific question is, did God hide evidence for the flood? Uh, we're going to talk about why we think he did not, and then give some of that evidence. And uh, do remember that it is also an interview episode where um, uh, I was actually interviewed by Mark Lambert, uh, Pastor Mark Lambert of the Hey Pastor podcast. And so that is going to be going out to you next week. All right. So thank you so much for joining us. Have a great week and bye-bye.